Sam, the clock is ticking right now. The United States is about to play Iran in the World Cup at 2 p.m. Eastern today. And how would you describe the totality of what's at stake here? There's no question, Pablo. I mean, when it comes to geopolitical crossover with sports, the U.S. and Iran obviously is right at the top of the list in terms of memorable matchups. Sam Borden is currently in Qatar covering the World Cup for ESPN. It's impossible to look at this game on Tuesday and not think about the World Cup in 1998. Well, the game, some said, would never take place. Here it is unfolding with real drama. The relations between the countries were incredibly hostile because of the hostage crisis in the 70s. America was supporting Iraq in the Iran-Iraq war of the 80s. Yes. On the field, the result obviously didn't go well for the Americans. Manavikir in the clear. He's got support in the center. He doesn't need it. It's surely Iran's victory now with six minutes to go. That game is one of the high points in Iranian sports history and I think lives in infamy in a lot of ways in American sports history. In addition to losing on the field, that defeat effectively knocked the U.S. out of the World Cup, a similar situation to what they're facing on Tuesday here. Today, in a lot of ways, It is a similar vibe. Iran is experiencing right now an enormous amount of protests against their own regime, a theocracy, because of the country's stance on women's rights. Tonight, demonstrations spreading. Iranian women bravely going head-to-head with security forces. Protests erupting at universities across the country. They are calling these demonstrations the beginning of a revolution. And off the field, they're at odds with what America believes it represents. So relations are very tense yet again. We talk all the time, usually in a positive sense, about, you know, sort of the crossover between international soccer and culture. And I think, you know, if you talk to the coaches and the players that are going to be in this game on Tuesday, they would say they hope that this is a positive thing, that this game is a way towards better relations between these two countries. But the bottom line is, politically speaking, Iran and the United States have a really difficult history, and this game is shining a spotlight on that once again. In a soccer sense, what this match means could not be simpler for America. You win, and you're in. Anything short of a victory, including another draw, will send you home, eliminating you from the knockout stage of this World Cup. But today, we explain how in pretty much every other sense, this match is wildly complicated. About as complicated as navigating relations with a theocratic government that has been at odds with the United States for decades, as Iran now finds itself in the throes of a protest movement during the first World Cup in the history of the Middle East. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Tuesday, November 29th. This is ESPN Daily. Delicious meat nutritious. 
in the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot, taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. So, Sam, you have been in Qatar since the start of this whole tournament, since the start of the World Cup. You've been monitoring, in specific, the U.S. men's national team. And just to recap what you've seen here, right? Two matches, two draws, a 1-1 draw against Wales, a 0-0 draw against England. How has this all felt? How would you assess that performance? I would say pretty unsatisfying, Pablo. I think that the game against England was, I guess, what you would call a success. I think that, you know, getting a draw against one of the top teams in the world, a team that many people have picked to win the World Cup, a rival in so many ways, the English are for the Americans. I think that you would have to call that a success. But I think when you take that in combination with the performance that they had, particularly in the second half against Wales, the whole thing just feels a little less than what American fans were hoping for. This is a, a new, young generation of players on this U.S. team, and the expectations are high. These guys play in the Champions League. They play in the Premier League. They play for some of the biggest clubs in Europe. Yes. And through 180 minutes of play, they've scored one goal. <laughs> and I know World Cup goals are hard to come by, but you got to do better than one goal through two games, in my opinion. So I think that as we go into this last game, it's fair to say that in a lot of ways, it's make or break, not only for the tournament itself, but also for how we're going to look at this young team. Is the last four years a success? Is it completely unsatisfying? I think that what happens on Tuesday is really going to determine it. And I don't know if that's fair or not fair, but that's just kind of the way that it's set up over these first two games. Yeah, as soon as that first half happened against Wales, I grew impatient, Sam. I was already fast-forwarding the timeline that you would caution me against fast-forwarding <laughs> because we're supposed to live in the present, not yet in the future. But now I look at the standings, and it turns out that the standings, the literal standings, have been a player in this drama, right? Because over the weekend... The U.S. men's national team published multiple posts on social media outlining the standings, right? And there's England at the top, Iran, and then the U.S., and then Wales. But when they posted the Iranian flag, they used a version of it online that was missing the central emblem that represents the Islamic Republic. A bit of pregame drama here in Doha. This weekend, the U.S. Soccer Federation briefly posted social media images of Iran's flag without the emblem of the Islamic Republic of Iran at its center. The emblem is the word Allah or God in stylized script added to Iran's flag after the 1979 Islamic Revolution. What was the significance exactly and the impact of that social media decision? Yeah, Pablo, I think it's important to be clear about a couple of things. First of all, that symbol is incredibly important when it comes to the representation of Iran. 
the regime there is a theocracy. They believe that they are the messengers of God and God rules everything and they are the ones that are sort of delivering his message. And so to remove the Islamic Republic symbol, that's a huge deal in terms of making a modification to the flag. The reason that U.S. Soccer Federation officials did it was they wanted to make what they said was a small protest, a small show of support for women in Iran who are in search of the most basic human rights. There have been incredible protests for women in Iran to receive better treatment. The UN Human Rights Commissioner says Iran is experiencing a human rights crisis as a result of the state's violent suppression of protests over the past eight weeks. Speaking at an emergency session of the UN Human Rights Council on Thursday, he said 14,000 people, including children, have been arrested so far. This was, by US soccer's design, an attempt to show support for those efforts. Obviously, it was not received well by the Iranian government, by the Iranian Soccer Federation. Iran's state media say the country's Soccer Federation has asked FIFA to issue a serious warning to the U.S. Soccer Federation. They called on FIFA to investigate the situation. They said at one point that U.S. Soccer had violated the FIFA charter and should receive a 10-match penalty. I mean, none of these things are actually going to happen, but I'm only mentioning it as a way to demonstrate just how big a deal it was to Iran. The players had nothing to do with it. The coach, Greg Berhalter, had nothing to do with it. But it was a series of posts made on official social media channels run by U.S. soccer. And in my opinion, it was a hugely controversial decision for them to take just days before what is, by some distance, the biggest game that the Federation has seen in a long, long time. Yeah, I mean, just some of the backdrop here and what's been happening in Iran, Sam. These are protests that were sparked because of the death of Masa Amini, this 22-year-old woman who died in police custody after she got arrested for allegedly wearing her mandatory headscarf too loosely. All of which is now the pretext for this larger global news cycle and also these multiple press conferences over the last couple days that you were in the room for. So what did you hear the Iranian and the American team say about this latest social media controversy? You know, it was actually really interesting. So, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here, Pablo, but you've been at Olympics, you've been at World Cups. You know that these press conferences where there is sort of international media from all over the world, not everybody has the same sort of definition of what a journalist is in various countries around the world. Yes. They're not quite like what you would typically see like at an NBA or NFL press conference on a post-game situation. So with that as the backdrop, the Iranian coach, Carlos Queiroz, who's actually Portuguese, but is, uh, has been the coach of Iran on and off for many years, and Iran's captain came to their press conference. And during a 30-minute press conference, the moderator only called on one English-speaking journalist, uh, a British journalist, and zero women. So there were not a lot of probing questions about this particular situation. There was a lot of, I mean, there were three moments where the journalists in attendance gave rounds of applause. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Mm. And the questions were largely about the opportunity that Iran had to advance to the knockout rounds and knock the U.S. out of the World Cup. The one thing that Carlos Kirosh did say was that 
he and his players support human rights around the world. We are solidarity with the humanitarian causes all over the world, wherever they are, who, who they are. Uh, either if it, we talk about uh, uh, human rights, racism, kids that die in schools uh, with shootings, we are solidarity with all those causes. But here, our mission is bring the smiles for the people at least for 90 minutes. That's our mission. He said that he's not going to be using these social media posts in any way really to motivate his players because with a game of this magnitude, they don't need any extra motivation. Carlos, um, yesterday your federation made a formal complaint to FIFA about some social media uh, posts put up by the US federation. Have you heard how FIFA have responded to that? And will you use that kind of thing, those posts, the sort of defacing of the Iran flag to motivate your players ahead of the game? Starting from the end, if, if after 42 years in this game as a coach, I still believe that I could win games with those uh, mental games, <laughs> I, I think I did not learn nothing about the game. But, you know, I'm also just curious about how the players themselves on the Iranian national team feel about all of this, Sam, because the count at last check was roughly 250 protesters killed and some 14,000 or so arrested by the government back in their home country. And this story has just ripped apart Iran. So how do the athletes feel about everything that's happening? What do we know about that part? The players on this Iranian team are not all in support of the regime in Iran. Many of them have refused to sing the national anthem before their games at the World Cup and have gotten praise for that. Some of them do support the regime, or at least say they do. Others don't. And so when it comes to this particular episode, as it relates to the U.S. and the social media posts, I think the one thing that I've sort of gleaned from Iran's players is that they just want the world to know that they are a brotherhood, that they are a unit, and that they are working to bring happiness to the Iranian people. Yeah, it's also worth mentioning here, too, that CNN has just recently reported that players on this team, on the national team, have been threatened by the Iranian government with potential arrests and torture if they do not behave ahead of the U.S. match here today. And so that could be alluding to the singing of the national anthem. But I do just want to juxtapose here generally what you saw in the theater of those Iranian press conferences with what you witnessed at the pressers for the U.S. team. What did you hear from the American side? The first thing that you heard was Tim uh, Ream and Walker Zimmerman, the two players who had spoken in the media just hours after this whole thing had happened on Sunday night. They had said, we support women's rights and always have. We're huge supporters of, of women's rights. And I know the post, like I mentioned, you know, we, we didn't know anything about the post, but we are supporters of women's rights. We, we always have been. Greg Berhalter reiterated that in his press conference on Monday. The other thing that he did, which was unusual and I think a little bit surprising, at least to me, was that he apologized. All we can do on our behalf is apologize on behalf of the players and the staff, but it's not something that... Um, you know, that, that we are part of. The Federation didn't apologize. Mm. Reem and Walker Zimmerman didn't apologize. But I think that Greg Berhalter recognized that among the people who might have been offended by removing that Islamic Republic symbol 
are Muslims who don't necessarily support Iran's theocratic regime, that there are people in the world who may be Muslim, who may appreciate that symbol, but who don't agree with Iran's current government situation. But all of this does remind me that the job that Greg Berhalter is being asked to do here is not merely get his team into the knockout rounds of the World Cup. It is to diffuse like genuine international conflict. Well, I'll tell you what, Pablo, that's not all he was asked to do during this press conference, which was one of the strangest ones that I've been at in quite some time, which is saying something. Berhalter was asked about the possibility that inflation might be affecting the popularity of his team. I've been at New York about two months ago, and there was no support of your team as the high rise of uh, inflation and economical problems. Do you think the American people uh, support your team and you, or no, they don't care about it? Thank you. (laughs) He was asked about visa issues and sort of passport entry rules regarding Iranian citizens who might want to come to the U.S. and U.S. citizens who might want to come to Iran. My question is, uh, how is your reaction when I tell you, like, uh, U.S. passport, they can be welcome to Iran anytime and they can visit anywhere in Iran. But at the same time, Iranian Iranian passport, they can't uh, enter USA or United States, the lands. So what's your reaction about that? You know, I don't know enough about politics. I'm a soccer coach and, um, you know, I'm not well versed on international politics, so I can't comment on that. Man. It was just like weirdness, Pablo. There was a lot of weirdness. And as you said, this is the coach of a soccer team and he was asked to serve in a number of roles that moved far beyond that general purview. Also, Tyler Adams was chastised by an Iranian journalist for the way that he pronounced the country's name. He said, Iran, Mm. and the Iranian journalist chastised him for that. First of all, you say you support the Iranian people, but you're pronouncing our country's name wrong. Our country is named Iran, not Iran. Please, once and for all, let's get this clear. The journalist then followed up by asking Adams, who is black, how he feels about representing a country where systemic racism is still very much an issue. Second of all, um, are you okay to be representing a country that has so much discrimination against black people in its own borders? And full credit to Tyler Adams, he gave an incredibly thoughtful, I thought, and nuanced answer. There's discrimination uh, everywhere you go. Um, You know, one thing that I've learned, especially from living abroad in the past years and uh, having to fit in in different cultures and kind of assimilate into different cultures, um, is that in the U.S. we're we're continuing to make progress uh, every single day. This is the World Cup. I mean, this is where soccer teams are proxies for entire countries. And so when FIFA is trying to say repeatedly and desperately that football is not political, right? right, Sam? This is what their whole stance is. They've been trying to prevent teams from wearing these armbands that explicitly support LGBT rights in a country, Qatar, that does not permit same-sex activities. They want everybody to focus on what happens on the pitch. How would you say that all of this is going from every angle here How would I say it's going? I don't know. Bad, Pablo? (laughs) Bad, I think, (laughs) is what I would say. I mean, you know, that was the message that FIFA sent to the teams before the tournament. No, let's keep the focus on the pitch. Let's keep uh, soccer as the, you know, the thing that we're all looking at. But then, 
We've had the reversal on selling alcohol at games, which, you know, brought sort of the tension between what it's like to have a very Western event in a conservative Muslim country back to the fore. We've had the armband issues. We've now had this issue with the flag. Migrant workers, the thousands of deaths. Yes, migrant workers, right. LGBTQ rights, like you said, like it's a little bit endless. And so I guess if you're if you're asking, you know, on a scale of... Um, you know, one to 10, how is FIFA doing in keeping the focus on the pitch? I, I, I guess I would say, you know, somewhere around, I don't know, minus 100. Yeah, if, if zero is not available, let's go with one of the <laughs> negative integers, please. But now, as we attempt ourselves to consider the actual match in our capacity as sports media people. Oh, there's a game? There apparently, allegedly, is in fact a game. And what do you expect to see at 2 p.m. Eastern? I really don't know, Pablo, because I, I think if the team that showed up in the first half against Wales, if that team that came out and played like its hair was on fire, was running up and down the field, was incisive, was attacking, was really like showing the talent that this young American group has, if that's the team that shows up, I think they could win 2-0, 3-0 even. I think they could. But Iran, their game against Wales, especially the last 20 minutes or so, was really impressive. And they have a veteran team. They're like the opposite of the Americans. They have a roster that's loaded with veteran players who are going to be able to handle this moment, who have played in big matches. And so I just don't know what to expect. I think it's very possible that the U.S. comes out and takes advantage of its edge and talent and wins the game. But I think it's equally possible that they're cowed by the moment, they get down early, and they're staring at their tournament lives and they don't know what to do because they're a bunch of 20-somethings, or even younger in some cases, who have never been on a stage quite like this one. Coming up. The World Cup and Miami, potentially, are about to get messy. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home some huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So it's worth noting, Sam, that the rest of the world is also here. <laughs> They're also there with you in Qatar. And I want to start <laughs> with Group E because we always try to figure out, okay, who's the group of death? And it does feel like this is it. It's Spain, it's Germany, it's Japan, it's Costa Rica. And Germany, 
is at the bottom of the group. This is one of the favorites to win the whole thing. This is a perennial international powerhouse that's won this thing before. What have you seen out of Germany? Yeah, Pablo, there's no question. I mean, there have been some big results in this tournament. And, and I just want to, I'm not going to pat myself on the back too much, but I don't know if you remember, but in our initial chat before yeah, the tournament. No, pat away. I said, this is the kind of tournament where weirdness happens, right? Like it just sets up for that. And I think I have been proven out fairly, fairly well on that in this group stage. You know, Germany, like you said, obviously a shock result in the first game against Japan. And you know, there are a few teams that are sort of like what Germany is in this tournament, and that is a team that's sort of between generations a little bit. Uh, mm. Not quite all the way a young group like the U.S., not quite a group in their prime like maybe England is uh, at this moment. And so I think Germany would fall into that group. It was remarkable to see Japan, who, like I had said to you in that last uh, chat we had, they're a team that can pull off some surprises. And we saw that, right? I mean, they beat Germany. We did. And then came back and lost to Costa Rica. I mean, like, how can you put those two results together? It almost makes no sense. But international football is always filled with surprises like this. And we've seen more than our share in the first two weeks here in Qatar. Yeah, the inconsistency here is is both beautiful and maddening. And... That must be how Argentina has felt in Group C. <laughs> because they got, yes, Argentina, Poland, Mexico, and Saudi Arabia. And their first match, Leo Messi, is upset by Saudi Arabia 2-1, which was just objectively unthinkable. But then Argentina managed to save their entire tournament life by beating Mexico 2-0. And now they're still alive. You loved Argentina heading into this, the story and the potential. Where are both of those things now? Yeah, well, two things I want to say about that, Pablo. First is the Saudi Arabian players, I mean, that was the result of a lifetime. I mean, uh, there were reports that the players received Rolls Royces from the Saudi government simply for that <laughs> one game. So, like, you know, yeah, that was... Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was, like incomprehensible. It's funny. I've seen a lot of Saudi Arabian fans in and around uh, Doha here. Obviously, it's not a very far trip from uh, Saudi Arabia to here. And they were like, I have never seen people more excited about a result than that, than that win. I mean, beating Messi, beating Argentina, that was incredible. But like you said, you know, it, Argentina also had to consider the fact that it was one game and one out of three, right? And they came right back, beat Mexico. And I think, in my opinion, the way they played towards the end of the Mexico game, they got a great goal from Messi. They won 2-0. They showed that they certainly have, in my opinion, among the most talented rosters here at the World Cup. Like, I still stand by them. I don't see anything from them in that second game that makes me think they're still not a threat to go on and win this World Cup. Was that a bizarre performance against Saudi Arabia? Absolutely. But like I said, you know, weird things are happening here. And in the end, it feels a little bit like it could be one of those scares that, you know, sometimes like, uh, you know, Duke or North Carolina gets like in the, you know, round of 64 or round of 32 in the tournament. They, they sneak by, you know, by, uh, by three on a late buzzer beater, and then they go on and win March Madness anyway. Feels to me a little bit like the same thing might happen to Argentina here.
Yeah, now I'm just imagining uh, Leo Messi slapping the floor <laughs> in an attempt to motivate his team. But look, the weirdness that you mentioned, it's spilling over into like the rest of the planet. It's it's reaching our shores now, Sam, because the story of Leo Messi, who is playing in his last World Cup, we believe, it, it continues with these reports that came out over the weekend that Messi is about to sign this giant deal the biggest deal in MLS history with Inter Miami. And so Messi coming to the U.S., what was your reaction when you heard that? Well, I think, you know, my reaction initially was a little bit of doubt. Not that he will ever come to the U.S., but that he has actually agreed a deal in the middle of the World Cup for that to happen. I think that, you know, what happens oftentimes during the World Cup is speculation about players and where they might go in their club careers afterwards. We've seen reports uh, about Christian Pulisic on the U.S. team and how he might be headed to Manchester United in the January transfer window. And I think, I think that's certainly possible. When it comes to Messi, I think that it is possible that he will play in MLS someday. And if he does, I have no doubt that it will be in Miami. They certainly have a free spending owner. Messi, I think, owns property in Miami, certainly spends a lot of time there in the offseason and clearly enjoys being there. I'm just not 100% convinced, Pablo, that this is a guy who, once he's done playing top-level international soccer in Europe, is going to want to continue to play in MLS. Look, could it happen? Yes, I think it could happen. But Messi has never struck me as somebody who had such an undying love for the sport that he want to play it you know, beyond the time when he's playing at the highest level. And, you know, you would think, presumably, he wouldn't be doing it for the money. Uh, and I think it's just, it's one of those things where, in the end, I would love to see it happen as a fan of American soccer. It'd be great for MLS and for fans in the United States to see Messi on a regular basis. But I guess I would say that my overarching reaction was a little bit dubious of the possibility that's going to happen anytime soon. So you're saying that there's a little bit of a Saudi Arabia beating Argentina type of upset necessary to make Leo Messi want to actually, you know, get a residency, a Vegas-style residency in America. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know, Pablo. I think, like, I mean, he lives in Paris right now. That's not a bad place to be. No, um, it's not. And, and so my guess would be that uh, he's got a little bit more time left to run in Paris in the Champions League before he heads to MLS. Yeah, yeah. Sam Borden, thank you for maintaining your residency with us on ESPN Daily. Thanks very much, Pablo. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.